take our Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18, as, as you are turning there, it's, it's been a couple of weeks. Uh, we enjoyed a, uh, a WANA celebration last week, and so it was the week before that we were uh, last in our study of the end times. So just as you're turning there to put all of this back in its context, we are at the very end of the end of times uh, in how we are working our way through uh, the material, get, giving you know, the lion's share of our attention here to the book of Revelation. And so we'd spend time looking at chapter 16, this final outpouring of God's judgment, what are described as the bowls being poured out. And at the, the end of chapter 16, we have, we have the, the final one. And so 17 through 21 um, speaks of, of the, the earth being shaken, and, and in the midst of that, talks about the great city that falls. And so as is, as is the case in Revelation, this, this has happened every time, and it happens again here when, when we have this record of the, the pronouncement of judgment, then we've got a couple of chapters that come back and fill in some of the details. Now, now, this one is unique, though they all are, but I find this particularly helpful because then chapters 17 and 18 fill in information that's kind of the backdrop to that final seventh bowl, that final act of judgment, where again, what, what it's described for us in chapter 16 is just this, sim- this simple statement of the fall of the great city. So what does that mean? And what does that look like? So... Chapter 17 and 18 come and and fill that out for us. Chapter 17, we've already walked our way through. It it highlights the the rotten spirituality of the world. Uh, This, what I I called spiritual adultery, this going after of other gods. We see this as a consistent theme in Scripture. It is one of the premier reasons for God's judgment, that, that people do not worship Him as he deserves, even, even when God intervenes and makes himself known, even in extreme cases where God intervenes and makes himself known in his judgment against their sin. They still don't repent. They still don't turn. That, that man has an exceptional ability to love himself and to hate God. He has an exceptional ability to do this. And Revelation just puts this on display. We see this will be put on display to its ultimate sense at the very end. So chapter 17, you know, walks through then this, this rotten spirituality of the kings of the earth, that, that those who had, uh, who had not received Christ, right, uh, those who are unbelievers, those who follow after the beast, uh, that they demonstrate their true loyalties by well, loving the wrong one and showing this and giving their ultimate worship. Then we get to chapter 18, and we see focus then given to specifically the destruction of this city, Babylon. Now keep in mind, what he's talking about here is not the destruction of a, of a literal, actual city. This is a, a symbolic way, the way Revelation often describes things. Babylon stands uh, as the, the symbol for the world system. 
So when, you, when we read Babylon, we read of the fall of Babylon, uh, that this isn't talking about a very specific city in the Middle East, all right? This, this is talking about that system that has set itself up against God, the system that's in place in the world now, that, that which is wicked, depraved, sinful, that, that which expresses these qualities in numerous ways. So, so chapter 18 is filling that out for us, giving us kind of greater insight into what the fall of this great city is. Now, before we jump back into material and I kind of get back into where we left off from a couple of weeks ago, I, I think chapter 18 is really important for us. It's one of those chapters, though it's odd because of its language and the nature of it being revelation, the nature of it being symbolic, it's a helpful chapter because it clearly identifies for us what will happen to the system that is in place now. And you do well to remind yourself of that. When we turn on our TVs or when we go to our sources of information and the information that we are being fed is is just so disheartening, disconcerting, troubling, right? We do well to remember a chapter like this. And keep in mind the original readers. Revelation was written to a group of people facing extreme persecution, facing extreme violence for the sake of the gospel. We're not talking about getting canceled from Twitter, all right? I mean, as frustrating as maybe that might be to somebody, right? Getting kicked off Facebook or whatever that may be. Not, you know, being banned from YouTube. Okay. We're not being impaled on poles and lit on fire so that the emperor can see his garden at night. But that's what they were facing. That's what Nero did to Christians. So, we recognize that a chapter like this would have had a profound impact on those believers it was designed to. Though it may appear that evil men do evil things unrestrained and unaccountable, that's not true. A chapter like this reminds us, God's day is coming. It will come. And this world system that we so clearly can see as, as being void of anything meaningful, is going to fall. So that, that's the essence of Revelation 18. And it's promising us then that future and final fall. And here's what we did last week. I, I think if you look at your notes, there are, there are, there are three truths that are communicated here and, and how we are encouraged to respond to what we know to be the case. One, to believe the coming destruction of the world. Again, keep in mind what I mean by this. I mean the destruction of that which has exalted itself against the things of God, right? And the recreation, eventually, of what will be a new heaven and new earth. But believe that this destruction is coming. We have the announcement at the beginning of chapter 18. This mighty angel cries out, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, has become a dwelling place of demons, so the the language that's communicated is what is clearly the the ultimate destruction of this system. Then then we looked at a second truth, and that is disentangling ourselves from the trappings of this world. 
Because then we hear another voice from heaven, verse 4, call, calling out to come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. So, so Revelation should serve this purpose for us, to clearly identify the nature of the world and then to force us to think clearly and carefully about how we engage with the world around us. Now, l- l- let me just clarify something here. Let's, I, I want to make sure that I, I say what I mean to say and don't imply something I don't mean to imply. When I say disentangle, I do not mean disengage entirely because the gospel demands otherwise, right? The gospel demands that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So when I say disentangle, what I mean, and we'll see kind of how this fleshes out with the rest of the text we'll look at tonight. When I say disentangle, I mean to make sure that we are not loving the things that the world loves and loving in a way that is indicative of how the world loves, that we are not becoming entangled with its values, principles, ideals, commitments, beliefs, that we we are distinguishing ourselves from that, making sure that how we live in the world around us is in light of having a biblical worldview, a godly worldview. And so this, this call comes out to, to, come, to, to come out from them uh, so, so that we, we, we not be collateral damage, as it were. And so that then as, as we move into verse 9, we see a third and critically important idea, and that is to recognize the fragility of the world. It is a fragile system. I know we look at some of these things around the world and we think they are really powerful. We we think, I, I may get pushed back here, but that's what you all love to do on Sunday nights, right? All right, so please feel free to do so. We we hear stories of China. Boy, we get worried, right? about China. We are, we are led to believe by how information is presented to us that these groups present ultimate power. But they don't. It's fragile. In fact, I think we have a fascinating example of this. Who would have thought just four or five months ago that the situation in Ukraine would be what it is? And that the situation in Russia would be what it is. That in fact we do see a nation that by all accounts seemed to be a significant power that should have taken this other little nation within days, right? That's what we were, that's what we were told. Of course that didn't happen. I think these kind of things indicate something. These, these, these portraits that are painted for us not really accurate. It's not the world as it really is. And for sure, Revelation comes along and reminds us this system is fragile. And we see this in a few ways. It is a fragile political system. Notice how then this goes on to be described. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her 
when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Now, this is already interesting because a previous statement had been made about Babylon that her judgment would come in one day. But now we have the kings, right? We have those in positions of power. The reference here to the kings are those who benefited from the power structure. Now, the, the, the most immediate, I, I think, uh, meaning of this as we've been looking at it in light of events that are yet to take place. So we're talking at the very end, that final expression of the kingdom of this world as directed by the Antichrist, empowered by Satan himself, those who are in positions of power, who align themselves. I mean, the way Revelation puts it is fornicated, so that's pretty strong language, right? This, this, these who align themselves, these people in positions of power with this system, they are going to see, one, they made the wrong choice, and that this was ultimately a, 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 a hopeless endeavor. They believed this, this system to be one of power and influence. And boy, did they benefit from it. They lived luxuriously. Boy, aren't you glad that politics today isn't like politics 2,000 years ago? Aren't you glad that politicians don't live luxuriously off of a broken and wicked system? No, it's almost like you read the Bible and you think, huh, maybe people really are people. And they've always been lost in wicked people. And maybe, in fact, they've never been as smart as they thought themselves to be. Maybe modern man is not as smart as he thinks himself to be. And maybe even with the best of political systems to be developed in history, it's still broken, right? It's still broken. And there are those, even today, who live luxuriously. Now, this, this doesn't mean that they worked hard and they benefited, right, from pulling themselves up and a hard day's work and they made themselves. That's not what this is talking about. This, this is implying that they took advantage of, that they, they manipulated and used the system. So they're going to weep and lament. Is that not a fascinating statement? They're going to stand and watch. Keep in mind, this is a symbolic way of putting this, all right? They are going to watch the fall of this great city, the fall of this system. And what are they not doing here? They're not repenting. They're not saying, wow, we were foolish. They're not saying, boy, we should have, if I could go back and do it over again. They're not saying anything like that. Instead, what are they saying? They are lamenting, and they're actually, you want to see just how far they have gone. They are, they are describing this city as the mighty city. How, how do you do that? How do you look at the utter destruction of this and think, wow, that's one mighty city? I think you'd look at the destruction of it and say, wow, I used to think it was a mighty city, but that's not what they say. They still call it a mighty city. This, this is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about men having darkened minds. They can't see things as they really are. And they will not see things as they really are. 
And then to say, for in one hour your judgment has come. One hour. This thing that seems so impenetrable, so powerful. One hour, and it's gone. And so they watch helplessly. I mean, I think that's, what's being, that's, how, that's why it's being stated this way, saying that standing at a distance for fear of her torment, meaning there's nothing they can do about it. Then this, we, we do well to remember this. What we, what we really grieve over is our world does not recognize this. Our world does not recognize they will be helpless in the face of God's judgment. There won't be anything they'll be able to do about it. They'll stand helpless and watch as as God fulfills His promise to, to bring justice and righteousness to the earth. So, a fragile political system. Questions about verses 9 and 10? Comments? So the question is, what is the reference to Babylon? How, do we, how did John understand it in his day, and how do we understand it in ours? Is that a way to put the question? All right. That's for the sake of you folks online. You're welcome. All right. As I've been told. All right. So we repeat the question for them. Um, so, you know, the, the, the image obviously is an Old Testament one. You know, when, when he's speaking of Babylon at this point, you know, not that there wouldn't be a concept of that in the, in the world as they, as they knew it, but John, this reference is very clearly Old Testament. Um, this, this people that stood, uh, this, this location that stood as an expression of pure paganism, antagonism towards God, God's people. I mean, Babylon in the Old Testament is right up there with Egypt, Edom, um, Assyria. So you see some of these nations that really are identified in biblical theology as, as representative of that which is against God and His people. And so, so Babylon stands for that. Babylon is, is that which comes against God and His people. I think you'd then add to that that which is utterly pagan. That which is... And, you know, there's, 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 there's also an allusion here if you go all the way back to the Old Testament, if we were to unpack this in all of its fullness, you know, we, we recognize Babylon was that nation that God used. So we've really got two references. Babylon was that nation that God used to bring judgment upon Judah, right? And Nebuchadnezzar comes into Jerusalem uh, and inflicts such extreme violence. Uh, that the prophets are also clear. The Assyrians do the same thing. The prophets are clear. They are God's instrument of judgment, but they will not um, escape God's judgment at the same time. So, so in a sense, this is a way of just reminding us of what was that ancient promise. Babylon will be judged for her evil and wickedness. 
But, I, you know, I would say Babylon also goes all the way back to Genesis 11 and goes back to, to Babel and the establishment then of uh, that city and a group of people that wanted to build a tower to the heavens, usurp and circumvent God, right? That's what they're doing. And so Babylon, I think that reference here just takes all of that into consideration. So Babylon then stands as that which is opposed to God and to God's people. In terms of today, I would not identify Babylon. I don't think there's any way to do this. I know there are some who teach, even with maybe some of the way I approach it, but they'll take it another few steps further and they'll identify it, say, with the European Union. I know there was a um, a move 30, 40 years ago with the first 10 countries that became that, and all of a sudden that is the, the reference to the 10, and well, now the EU is much bigger than 10 nations, so I mean, it can't be that anymore. Uh, instead, I would recognize Babylon as being far more this portrait of that which is opposed to God, uh, that which is then responsible for as far as she is concerned, Babylon's concerned, for promoting wickedness, idolatry, disobedience, rebellion. And so even in our day, that is what Babylon would mean. So I I think you could then look at any given set of people groups around, you know, you could look at, at anything. Quite frankly, we live in a country that's Babylon. I don't know any other way to describe it. We have somebody going on the Supreme Court who said they couldn't identify what a woman was because they weren't a biologist. Babylon. We, 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 have, we have people saying all kinds of just unbelievable and ridiculous things. Uh, the day I think it will come before I retire from being pastor, unless I die ahead of time, all right? Unless all of this just kills me, okay? Where me saying what I'm about to say will bring serious consequences. There are only two genders. You are either a man or a woman, and you don't get to decide several years later which one you are. You don't even need a test. It's clear, all right? So how else do you, do you describe this? When, when now you have people in positions of power and influence, even in our very own military, even at the, some of the highest levels of our federal government, it's Babylon. So I, I, I look at all of this. I read this about, about Babylon, and this is describing then all of that at the very end and all of it falling. But that's the world system. I mean, anything that you may see on TV that you just think... <laughs> When you do that, when, when you look at it, you know, mouth open, dumb, that dumbfounded look that you probably have every day, right? That, that's Babylon. That's, that's what it is. Also, you see here, you kind of brought this out in, in, a, in a kind of, uh, at least you've alluded to it. You see the contrast here between the omnipotence of God and the impotence of man in this world system. Oh, for sure. Man wants to do this and that and the other thing. And what it was, it was doing one of these. 
in the face of God and saying, no, I'm divine. I have that attribute or omnipotence. I can be as powerful as you are. Mm. And the all-powerful God is saying here, the one true God of heaven and earth, no, you can't. Mm. I'm going to classify myself. I'm omnipotent. You're not. Mm. You're impotent. And I, and I think that the contrast here is stark. I mean, it's just, it just it reads from the pages. It just comes out and leaps off the pages. That man thinks he's omnipotent, but in reality, this world and this system of this world, which is, is corrupt and evil and is out to, because it's under the control of and under the power and under the sway of the evil one, wants to be God, and God's saying, I'm showing you that you're not me, mm. and I'm not you. And you're going to find this out in a very stark way, that what you consider to be all-powerful and mighty and strong and all that, I can just, just in, at, you know, in a second, in, mm. a, in, in just one hour, all that can be gone. Yeah, so, so yes, as, as Michael was saying, if you didn't hear that, how this really sets up this contrast between the omnipotence of God and the impotence of man. And uh, I think that's a really uh, succinct way to, to summarize uh, how, that, how that's being described. Yeah, yes, God's omnipotence versus man's impotence and how we don't think we are that, how men do not think uh, that uh, they are actually without power, but God demonstrates His ability uh, to bring down the supposed mighty city and to do so. Again, the, the time frame, saying one hour, that's just a way of saying it happens really quickly. So, all right? All right, so, so notice then the second feature, and that is a fragile economic system. So now he turns his attention. He's talking about the kings. Now he's going to talk about the merchants. Verse 11 and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Now, before we get into their merchandise, I mean, so again, we see the same thing. The kings are lamenting because they don't have anybody to manipulate and live luxuriously off of, right? They're not lamenting because they realize the foolishness of their ways. And the merchants are not lamenting because they realize, oh, we've given ourselves to the love of money, right? To greed and, and accumulating for ourselves. And boy, what a what a bad uh, use of our time that was. That's not what they're saying. They're lamenting because there's nobody they can get money from. Merchandise of gold, verse 12, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, frank, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. So this is interesting, by the way. So not only are they listing out all of these things that had value. So, I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty accessible. I mean, we, not, we may not recognize, I, I don't know, maybe you have every kind of citron wood. Uh, maybe you think, you know, my passion is citron wood. Um, probably not, but I think we understand what it means, right? These material possessions, these things that were bought and sold and traded, these things that made up the essence of, of the, the system, the economic system, and, and the, these things are no longer available. There's no one to buy this merchandise anymore, but then when it ends with, and bodies of souls of men, I mean, it's, it's talking about human trafficking. That's what he's talking about. 
That they, they weren't just buying and selling in frankincense and cinnamon and citron wood. They were buying and selling bodies and souls. So it, it's, it is, a, it is a, an economic system, you know, again, that just demonstrates its willingness to pursue economic gain. That is the ultimate goal. And so then it goes on in verse 14, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. Merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. So, you got the kings watching it burn, and you got merchants watching it burn with the same kind of language in, in one hour, all of this. By the way, for those of you who know then how the book ends, do you notice already with chapter 18 the setting up of a contrast with what's going to come in at, the, at the end? Do you, you remember when John sees the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem? And what's fascinating, though it doesn't explain it with exactly these kind of things, here these people thought that the city was something uh, because they had linen and gold and precious stones and pearls. Yeah, what God builds, that's what He makes the walls out of. That's what the streets are going to be made out of. So it's not that impressive. Your, your gains are not as impressive as you think they are. Your wares are not as valuable as you think they are. So this is definitely setting up this contrast because it's a lot of information. I've just found it interesting, all this detail about the merchants. Why do we have all this detail? And then you see it contrasted with what's going to come when John describes the new city. This city has fallen. What does the new city look like? So, so one of profound beauty, one that reflects the true glory of God. But he's not done here. There, there are still uh, other issues with this economic system. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city, in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Again, it is just so striking to me, the reflection of the heart of man in this, the, the wickedness of hum, humanity, of unredeemed humanity. I mean, this is the language of repentance, right? I mean, it should be. In other words, if you just said, oh, they threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing, if I just read that out to you and then asked the question, what do you think comes next? What would you probably assume? What would we assume? Contrition, right? We would assume that's going to be followed with confession of sin and repentance and crying out to God, but that's not what they do. Instead, they're still going to... Well, they're, they're in essence giving their worship to the city, are they not? 
alas, alas, the great city. And so it, it just is putting on display what is the, the utter wickedness of mankind. And keep in mind the other, the other significance of a chapter like this. And this is what Revelation does so well. When, when Revelation, and this, by the way, is regardless of how you might approach the book of Revelation. I, th- I think all would be in agreement with this. Regardless of how you see the nature of the judgments being described here, Revelation absolutely describes these judgments, and they are horrific, right? I mean, they're, we read them and we see this is going to be an execution of justice unlike the world has ever seen. And our gut reaction to that can be, wow, that seems harsh. Is that, I mean, it can, maybe we wouldn't necessarily say it, but maybe there's at least this thought in our, in our minds, wow, that seems harsh. And so this, then Revelation comes along and makes sure that we understand the depth of the depravity that's being judged. That this, that this, this is the right and just response. What was described in chapter 16, the bold judgments, is the right and just response. Because these are hardened men and women. And then you see this interesting statement in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Does that first verse initially just kind of strike anybody as a little uncomfortable? Rejoice, heaven. Rejoice over what is happening to her. Rejoice over the judgment that is falling upon her. Rejoice over the execution of God's justice. Because God is avenging you. What's he talking about there? This is a message then to martyrs, right? That's who's in mind. Those who had been persecuted by the system. Those who had been hunted and killed because of their faith in Christ. And this call is for heaven to rejoice. It, it, is, it is right and just to glorify God in His expression of His judgment. That is, that is right. It's, it's said over and over again. In fact, you're not, you're not going to be able to escape it when we get to chapter 19. Chapter 19 is very clearly, the opening of chapter 19 is very clearly this kind of language that speaks. So look at verse 1, just, just as it, we'll get to it next week. But after these things, I heard a loud voice of multitude, of great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Again, they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. It's just language we don't hear much. It's not going to be our go-to kind of passage, right? that we, 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 would, we would say this, this is a reason to glorify God when His justice is, uh, is brought upon evildoers. 
It is a right and good thing because God's being true to His Word. Now, that doesn't mean that we would not prefer to rejoice in the salvation of a sinner who turns from his or her sin. But at the same time, Romans 1 says, men are without excuse. They all know there's a Creator. In fact, Romans 1 makes it clear they know they're accountable to this Creator, but they don't care. They don't care. And so this, this does remind us, you know, this, this is something that, that heaven is called upon to rejoice. Let me give one final one, and then, then we'll, we'll have a little bit of time of discussion here at the end. So then, then I think he also brings out the, a fragile cultural system. Verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. So the act of the throwing of the millstone, and this, this is a kind of classic. We see this language in the Bible about, uh, you know, tying a millstone around your neck and, and you know, uh, jumping into the ocean, all right? This, this being the sign of, of judgment. But, but what's now being said, verse 22, the sound of harpists, musicians, flautists, I think is how you pronounce that, all right? I, I don't play a flute but I don't think you call somebody who plays a flute a flutist. I don't think they appreciate it. All right? Just so you know, I think they want to be called a flautist. Okay. And trumpeters shall not be heard in, in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sword all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. So it's interesting now, John tells us, and, and the, those things that the earth valued ultimately. Now, is there anything wrong with harpists and musicians and craftsmen? Well, surely not, right? We, we love and appreciate all of those things as a means to an end, right? It's a means to an end. It's not the end. It, it, it's, it's not a celebration of somebody's great skill and ability. I mean, we, we, we can identify that, and we should see when, when God enables people to do things that way as a way to then make the next step, right? To draw us unto God and His goodness. To glorify and honor Him. So, so these things shall be no more. By the way, I also think this is describing the ultimate judgment. That these things are not necessarily described like the merchants and the kings. These things are not described as sinful in and of themselves. But these things would be a, should be a blessing of the system. And even that is going to be no more. That, that, that's not going to be found. There's, there's not, not even the, the light of a lamp is not even going to shine anymore. This, this is ultimate judgment coming upon the system. So again, that's what chapter 18 is doing. It's describing this, this final fall of the world system that is in place. That is what is coming. There will be God's final judgment upon this. This entire thing that you and I live in will be brought under the sovereign, omnipotent, all-powerful judgment of God. 
So a system uh, that is going to fall. All right, questions, comments? We've got a couple of minutes. Be glad to entertain those if they are entertaining. Yeah, Dennis. So the question being asked, if you look in chapter 18, and so Dennis, tell me if this is where, um, what you're getting at. So we see a reference like in verse 3 that says, all nations have drunk of the wine. We see a reference to all nations coming again at the end of the chapter in chapter 23. But then, then we have what, what sounds like, say, verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication as if then identifying a specific set of kings, nations. So, the question is, uh, is there a distinction actually being made, or is, does do all nations mean all nations? Is there, is there a, a distinction? It depends on what the, the meaning of is is, <laughs> I think. <laughs> But you knew I would. So, uh, yeah, so does all, does all mean all? I mean, yeah, yes, I think all means all. I think when it, and, and, and my reaction to, the, to that question is then to see in verse 9, the, the kings of the earth, I think that is referencing all the kings of the earth, and they all committed fornication, is how I would answer that. So, yes, I, I don't think it's making a distinction. Uh, I'm not aware, though, of of some resource or commentary that would say otherwise. There could be, but I'm not aware of one. Doesn't that go back to the notion, and we've always studied it, you know, we're a nation founded on Judeo-Christian principles, and sometimes people would always, would always reference the United States as a Christian nation, but in reality, John MacArthur is right when he talks about pointing out there really has never been a truly Christian nation. There have been nations that have followed more Christian principles and others throughout history in varying times, but ultimately all the nations of this world have been predominantly and have been influenced predominantly and overwhelmingly by this corrupt, evil, uh, destined for destruction system, including the United States, which was founded, many of the founders were believers, but there were a lot of them that weren't believers. I mean, Jefferson was an out-and-out Unitarian. Sure. I doubt very seriously Jefferson was a believer at all. Brilliant man, greatly used of God, despite the fact probably not a believer at all. But we have a tendency, because we live in America, we've been blessed with a country that's had all these freedoms and had great leadership, and God, you know, made us, as it were, a beacon on the hill to, to, a, to a lost world. That doesn't mean that the nation itself was Christian. We've never really technically been a Christian nation. And I think MacArthur makes that point well, and others, not just sure. MacArthur, 
but he's, he's right. I mean, technically speaking, that's hard for us to grasp because we've been so blessed with living in America sure. and, and having the freedoms and the liberties that we do. Yeah, yeah. So Michael just bringing out you know this reference then to all nations and that we should recognize this in the context of, of even our own. And it is hard for us to think this way. Uh, we recognize our nation was founded on Judeo-Christian values. Many of them represented, you know, committed to, to certain biblical principles and values identified in, in Scripture. But at the same time, um, as, as MacArthur has argued, and I think argued well, you know, has there ever been a nation that we would, that we would say was fully and completely, in the appropriate biblical sense of the term, Christian? Well, of course not. Of course not. Um, to, 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 to say that um, our nation, everybody in our nation loved the Lord Jesus Christ up until just 50 years ago is nonsense, right? To be sure it is. Um, and and to, to suggest then that there is somehow something about our nation that will escape this is, is also a problematic way to view this. No, when it says all nations, uh, when it comes to the end, we'll, we'll be right there with them. I know that's hard for us, right? I understand. I understand that. But, but we, we will be right there. Yes, yes, this nation will be right there with them, drinking of the same wine of... of of the beast, yes, yes. Dennis, that actually leads to uh, there was a talk recently of the replacement theory. But what Michael said, it can also lead to that other replacement theory that the U.S. has replaced Israel, which doesn't doesn't line up. But the other thing I want to bring to your attention, when you said about the death of depravity, use that phrase. Mm. We talk about sin sometimes and that depravity, but the sin against this most perfect and majestic being. A lot of times we leave that on the shelf. We talk about the sin, we talk about the depravity, but who have we sinned against? As the mm. says, we have sinned against God, but who is God? And how wonderful and majestic and glorious is this God? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So Dennis just bringing up, you know, one we would also want to to reject this notion that that the United States somehow is a replacement for Israel. And there um, have been those who've argued such. I think, especially maybe historically, um, though that doesn't you know hold, hold any biblical um, water, so to speak. But to also you know be mindful of the fact that that, that these individuals, when we talk about their their sin, we don't want to distinguish that as just an isolated act, but one done unto God, uh, that in fact it is an act unto a holy, majestic, uh, glorious God. And to, to always keep before us, when we talk about the sin problem, we are also talking then about a way one decides to relate to God Himself. That's the essence of sin. Good. All right. Well, we have one more Sunday night. And I told you, Jesus would come back before my sabbatical, all right? And He is. He's coming back next Sunday night. Um, I mean, in, in Revelation 19. All right, so He's going to come back. I mean, I don't, well, that'd be amazing if He actually… 
Anyway, so, uh, but no, in the text, he's going to come back. All right, so we will get to the second coming. Chapter 19, we'll get to the second coming next Sunday night. Uh, let you, I'll let you know then a bit more about how the schedule will work out for the summer. It's going to be done a little bit of a different way, uh, so we'll talk about that next Sunday night. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we again thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together as sons and daughters and as brothers and sisters, and we, we just thank you for... Uh, the, the strength and the encouragement that comes as we come together uh, to worship and glorify you. We pray that you have been blessed by what your people have offered to you. Well, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for how it gives us understanding. Uh, we thank you for the way it provides the, the view through which we should look at the world around us. So help us to understand what is your greater work and what is the reality of the system that is in place now, uh, that which is destined for destruction. But Father, in the meantime, let us then be a people who are committed to going into that system and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, telling those who are destined for destruction that there is a means of salvation. And so, Father, give us boldness, courage, and compassion to communicate this truth of Christ crucified and resurrected. We thank you for the week that lays out before us. We entrust it to you. We ask for wisdom that we may live it well and be obedient in all ways to you, glorified as we, your people, live faithfully before you and in the world in which you have placed us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.